Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hi, thanks for joining the Global Marketing Podcast today. Today we have a very, very interesting podcast uh, episode. It's going to be a dual podcast where I'm interviewing Zach and Zach's interviewing me. The reason this is interesting is because Zach Selch of Global Sales Mentor is a fractional salesperson where companies can hire him to actually do sales on the ground. So welcome, Zach. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, it is so great to talk to you, Zach. So why don't you start out with a little bit about how you operate, and then I'll get into what we do, and, and we can compare and contrast the sales be marketing. Perfect. So um, what we do, my background is in sales. I've been selling internationally for about 30 years. And I like to say, essentially, I have been a purchase order guy. So, you know, you, you basically say, well, how do you actually go out and, and get a deal? And that's what I've been doing. I've been on the ground. And I like to say, basically, you know, every pair of shoes my kids have ever had is associated with a purchase order. Right. And that's when you're dealing with all the stuff you do with international expansion, a core part of that is actually selling. And so, what I do is I support international sales managers, and I do that through coaching and training and done-for-you services. And those done-for-you services could be something very small like uh, preparing training for your distributors, or it could be something very large, like a company could say to me, you know what, Zach, we really need to build up our sales organization. We can't afford to hire somebody good right now, can you build this up and just hand it over to us in a year? You know, hire the distributors, put together the plans, put together the marketing material, hire somebody to replace you, train him, and then hand over to us as a fully functioning sales organization. And I'll do both of those from the very small operations that sort of help somebody else out because they don't have enough bandwidth or time. Uh, all the way to building up an entire sales organization for a company and then handing it over like a car. So that's basically what I do. Okay. And so where we're coming in is when people need to figure out how to communicate and how to make sure their message works. Because if you create a global marketing message without in taking into account that you're going to hire distributors and salespeople and sell to people in other countries, your message may flop and then people aren't interested in your products or they don't get what you do. So, exactly. yeah. Yep. So, yeah. I'm. So, you know, everything, you need that support of marketing and sales to be successful. I'm sorry, what did, could you repeat that? Oh, I'm sorry. Like with every type of business interaction, you need the support of sales and marketing working together to really be successful. There are activities that you need marketing for and there are activities you need sales for. 
Right, right. And so just being clear for our audience that marketing really is the messaging, the strategy, the target market, how you're going to go to market. Um, and then sales can be a subset of that where you, that's where you're actually doing your outbound, you're hiring the distributors. Um, yeah, I, I think, again, like this is probably a, a discussion that happens in virtually every company around the world is sort of what's a subset of what type of thing. So it's sort of like, um, I think we probably have some overlap in that a large part of what I do is help people identify the right markets to go into, right? And I think that going into the wrong markets is usually one of the most common mistakes that new exporters make or virtually always when I go into somebody and they want to fix things, um, you can take a look and you can say, okay, the problem is, you know, 12 years ago, you really chose the wrong markets to go into, right? So I think, you know, those type of things, we probably have some overlap and we probably both do them, but, but that's, um, you know, there's, it's a big, big ocean out there to swim around it, right? There's a lot of different uh, activities that different people do. Well, it's, so, it's so funny, yeah, because I look at sales as a subset of marketing from the textbook definition, but I think that there is that natural, what does, in a lot of corporations, that sales and marketing report up through different areas, and then there's the right. whole move to ABM, account-based management, where sales and marketing are back to working together <laughs> and targeting, right. and, so, and I think yeah. that's where we need to go, is, is that 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 if a company is going to go international, you better be have your sales and marketing working together. Exactly. And I think you're right. It's sort of like with the messaging. Um, you know, you can find the right distributor. If you can't train that distributor, if you can't put the right message on the street, then you're not going to get sales. On the other hand, in the end of the day, you sort of need boots on the ground. And I, I was in the military and I always sort of default to military um, you know, methodologies and thinking about it from that perspective and sort of when you take a look at, at how you do things in the military you have, you know, infantry which goes out and takes ground and then you have, you know, the artillery and the air force that sort of without them you can't support, you can't do what you're trying to do and sort of I look at like the marketing as the artillery because they are sending out messages and they're advertising and they're doing all of this but typically when you want to hold ground, you need infantry and uh, you need sales. You need somebody out there getting a purchase order in the end of the day. And that's typically, you know, the way, the way it works. Um, but again, every company and every product is different. There are a lot of products. Like, you know, if you're doing, you know, consumer goods, you're, there are a lot of products that don't necessarily have a actual sales process or, or salespeople involved. It's all marketing. Right. There are a lot of products where everything goes through advertising or marketing or th those types of elements. And then there are things that really, in the end of the day, if you know two people aren't sitting together in a room and a purchase order isn't signed, no money changes hands. Right? So it really depends on the product and the market and all sorts of different things. But I think marketing and sales, in the end of the day, sort of support each other for the company to be effective and to reach success in, in what they're 
Right. So there's there's a couple things there that um, that we could really go deeper on, and one is the the feeling that um, certain products can be sold completely through marketing and don't need a sales force, and so those kind some consumer products, some um, technology like the online the software as a service. Um, what other products are you seeing in this area that could Ooh. be done completely? Well, again, online? I would say that really, you know, uh, to some extent, like I would even say software as a service, it really depends on the value point because if there's a lot of trust involved, it, it's very, very, very hard, not impossible, but very hard to establish trust without a salesperson involved, right? I mean, you can come out, uh, and again, I'm not a marketer, but let's say you come out with a beautiful message on, on you know, print ads and on videos and so on, and you talk about your product and how great it is, and you have references to talk about it, etc. It's still very hard to get somebody to say, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you $100,000 to use your software that's going to run a key operational element in my factory without a salesperson involved. Right? It's very difficult. It's, it's possible, but it's very difficult. So I would say when there is a high element of trust involved and that trust building is important, it's very difficult to get away from getting salespeople on the ground involved. Now, I, I might be wrong about that, but I, I'd say that's sort of where I draw the line. So when you're basically saying, well, I have a, you know, a $12 uh, type of barbecue sauce, and I'm going to sell that online. Obviously, that's entirely marketing. Now, you, you bring that up, you say, um, I'm selling a $250 uh, kitchen utensil. Maybe you can sell that online completely, right? At one point, you're crossing that line, and you're saying, you know, I don't know that somebody's going to pull the trigger on this without a salesperson. Where's that line? You know, twelve, two hundred fifty, up to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And can you draw that line between business to consumer and business to business? So here's the way I would say it, and this is something that you know you and I probably understand better than most of the population, right? So Americans, when you take a look at how Americans build trust, Americans are the strongest group in terms of what's called situational trust, right? You walk into Best Buy, somebody has a blue shirt on, you hand them your credit card, you trust them, right? Somebody walks into your office and says, I'm the vice president of sales of a company, you trust them. In Nigeria, trust has to be built no matter what, no matter what, what the situation is, you, you don't, you're not going to trust anybody without building it up. And there are countries along the curve. So, you know, you have, say, Nigeria is on the far end of, of that curve, and the United States is on the other part of the curve. I would argue that it depends where the country falls on the curve. So if it is relatively easy to build up trust, the value of that sale might actually be pretty high. You know, in America, um, People buy things that are five or seven thousand dollars off the internet without ever talking to somebody, right? They they do that on a pretty regular basis. I'm gonna guess that there are other countries that are 
but you can do that with with and, and I would almost tie that I would I would tie that with situational trust. But once you get to the, those countries where situational trust is extremely low, where you have to build up trust, I'm going to say that becomes very difficult to do. It's not impossible. I'm sure a really, really good marketer using really good tools could build up a lot more trust. But that's probably where you want to get salespeople involved. Does that make sense to you, Wendy? Right. So, it, it, right. It does. And it's so you bring in, a, um, and, and, and I don't want to, to leave that point because I want to leave our listeners with how do they decide whether to sell online or hire a sales rep? And then I want to get into how you build trust online as a marketer. So where, what would you, like, what's your target market when you're looking for a company that needs boots on the ground, a distributor or build out a sales force? For me, typically I'm using, I'm looking at a higher PO, right? I've, uh, with, during the course of my life, my average PO has been up above 100K. So typically, if you're looking at things that are going to be sold to governments, or they're going to be sold to factories, or they're going to be sold to hospitals, you're probably going to need a salesperson for that, right? I've, I've actually literally never done anything in 30 years. I've never dealt with consumer product, except, except a, a couple of times giving advice to people about something. But but never really uh, where that was a key part of what I did. So where you draw that line now, what I typically say to people um, when they're deciding on how to build up their organization, if you have a consumer product and you're not looking or, or you don't want to invest in a sales force in the beginning, I would be looking for markets that have a, a, a higher level of situational trust as opposed to having to build trust, right? And, and, and you can find that. You can basically look for those countries that in terms of their, of how they build trust, they do it, um, you, you can do it easy, more easily through marketing as opposed through face-to-face contact. Now, I'd say what's really interesting going forward in 2021 is we're all trying to figure out how to build trust without face-to-face contact. And I think that right there is the holy grail of what we're working on because we can't, you know, uh, 2019, I was 160 days in market, right? 2020, um, I haven't traveled since like the 12th of March, right? So we are all trying to figure out how do we go about building trust without being in the room? Now you're talking my language. This is all inbound marketing. This is what we've been doing for years because right. you know there's a whole buyer's journey where you have to attract people you have to engage them and then you have to delight them this is the the buyer's journey that um hubspot talks about so right. what what we see some of our clients doing quite successfully is that if they optimize their website where they have landing pages that are translated, they're providing content that answers the right. most common questions they get asked. 
people are tend to do more research online and don't get to talking to somebody to later in the sales cycle, like more right. in the engage. And so there's all sorts of content you can put out there, which is less expensive than having somebody build a relationship. Because if, if you're providing good information, not just right. sales, you know, push, push, push your company, but how somebody right. would thinking about buying it, how you can solve their problem, you're building that trust. And then, um, then you can bring the salesperson in very late in the game where you've already got an educated buyer and they're helping just fine tune what needs to happen. I just talked to a client the other day that said when they translated their website into Spanish because they sell to a lot of South American countries, they right. decreased their closing time by dramatic amounts because that information was on there. Right. And I'll tie that up to, to sort of sales nerd stuff, right? Which which I'm I'm very into. Mm -hmm. Is if you look back if you look back at the companies that do a lot of research on, on the sales process in the United States, mm -hmm. this is what was going on in America fifteen to eight years ago, more or less. How many but years? Between about fifteen to eight about eight years ago, there was this giant shift in terms of how much research people did online mm -hmm. as opposed to talking to salespeople. So if you go back 20 years ago, you could say, well, a buyer learned 95% of what he knew from a salesperson. Right. Right. And by about eight years ago, on average in the United States, a buyer was learning about 80% of what he needed to know. A buyer was learning about 80% of what he needed to know uh, online or before he met, before he talked to a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's, I, I don't think if that was keeping pace internationally, right? Yeah. I think it's shifted a lot in the past couple of years. And, and dramatically and over the last dramatically. year. Yeah. Dramatically over the last year. And as a matter of fact, maybe, you know, the last time I heard people really talking about this and doing research, it was about 80% in the United States. For all I know, it shifted up to 95%, right? People are getting more and more information online, not... Uh, simul uh, not um, synchronously, they say, right? Where uh, where you have a salesperson and the um, customer online at the same time, uh, they're 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 referring that now as synchronous selling, whereas they're talking about asynchronous selling, mm -hmm. where you basically the customer sends you a question and you send them an answer. Now that answer could be recorded, right? Right. Now, here's the thing, is that sales or marketing? Because let's say I answer 100 questions in short video clips, mm -hmm. and then I feed that into a computer, I, I feed that into artificial intelligence, and when people ask me a question, they get that clip. Now, I would say that we've shifted from sales to marketing at that point, right? I mean, it, it seems to me, 
because this seems almost like a marketing tool to, to do something like that. So it's an interesting hybrid that we're faced with, and I don't think we're going back. What, what do you think about that? Um, you faded out there just for a minute. So you're, you're oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, and so, so, at saying, the end you, so it's a hybrid and it's switch. The sales activity is switching to a marketing activity. I would say there's a strong argument to say that when you, with a salesperson, say records a clip that is then used not asynchronously, it is sent uh, by artificial intelligence or by a, an application to a customer, mm -hmm. in my mind that becomes marketing already, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's definitely marketing because you're anticipating the questions and answering them. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting world we're heading into where I think there's going to be a whole realignment of this that isn't going to change back. Yeah. I think it's just going to go forward and, and it's going to stay like this, you know? Yeah, I do too. And that's, I started my career in sales where it was, you know, you didn't have all these sales automation and ways to do the video and it really was personal relationships. Now it is, you, you, I really see developing the relationship that you might not even know you have, but that salesperson better be ready. It's not on that out time. It's that when the, when the buyer is ready, you've got to be responsive. Yeah. So it's, a, oh. it's a, a different management, a different type of skill that the, the salesperson needs. And internationally, that becomes 24-7. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Half the world isn't on vacation this week, right? Half right. Of the and, and actually, it's funny, a third of the world is way more on vacation than the United States. And then you have people who are like on vacation, and, you know, because Europe is closed down from like, you know, the 19th of uh, December until the 11th of January, basically, right? Can't do anything there. Right. But and just so our world, listeners are clear, we're recording this on the morning of December oh. 31st. So <laughs> right, it'll be a right, delayed I, broadcast. But it, but it, I mean, the point is exactly right, is that everybody right. all over the world celebrates the last two weeks differently. Right. And, you know, I'm taught, I, I had I have taught, I have calls with uh, in Arab and, and Confucian countries today and tomorrow. They're working. They don't care. Right. And I, I was talking to people on Christmas, so they don't, you know, some people don't care. And so they don't, you know, we're, we're there, you know, you're working with Asia from the United States. If, if everything is, is artificial intelligence and or video clips, you have no, you know, you're not waiting 14 hours right. to, to get, you know, you are out there right you, they they send a question to you and you send a clip back to them so you know so what cool. does this mean for someone like you who's used to traveling and face to face and entertaining and you know building those relationships what's it i mean you're uh, i know when i was in sales my you know outside my technology skills were not good so now well, all of so a sudden you got a bunch of people who are used to being out there and carrying a bag kind of lost because they got to learn all this. What's this mean for salespeople? 
So here's the funny thing. I am um, actually, and I'm going to give a quick plug. I wrote a book last year, uh, which basically is out, out now on the market called Global Sales. And in it, I basically said, you, you know, if you want to succeed, you have to get out in the field. And the important thing is to be face to face and face to face and face to face and face to face. And um, my editor said to me, she goes, Zach, uh, this book might be outdated right now, like in the middle of the year. And I'm like, you might be right. So I'm actually working on a new one, which is called Virtual uh, Internet Global Sales. But I, I would say two things. One is things are going to change. And I've changed a lot over the year. I, I put uh, several thousand dollars into building a video studio in my house because I figure I'm going to be working on a video camera at least half the half the year for the rest of my life because I think I looked at it pretty carefully and I think that there's about 60 to 70 percent of what I do I can do remotely. So even when I can travel again, I think it will it'll stick to being that percentage of work will still be remote, right? I believe that's going to be the case. Mm -hmm. That said, I still think you need people on the ground, right? So the question is, um, you know, and I'll tell you, for instance, what I did this year. I hired a bunch of part-time people on the ground to do work for me. So for instance, um, let's say, you know, think about this for a second. Let's say you really need to get a video conference with a senior official in the Ministry of Health of Ghana, right? You are not going to be able to get him. If he doesn't know you, you're not going to be able to get him to get on a Zoom call with you, right? Mm -hmm. That's just impossible. But can I hire somebody and pay him 500 bucks? to walk into the Ministry of Health, look for this guy, and hand him a phone and say, hey, can you talk to Zach, right? Now, this is a new idea, but so far it worked for me pretty well this year, right? So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to balance that out. And I think, you know, it's gonna, they're, I'm gonna be using a lot more people on the ground who aren't necessarily a fully trained, fully supported regional sales manager, they are, you know, helping me out to do certain things, to set up meetings, to set up calls, to, to do this type of thing and move it forward. And I sold more this year than I did last year hmm. without, you know, I haven't had a single face-to-face -face meeting since February, right? So... If you work hard, you know, I work, I work really, really hard and I, I, I stressed out and I was very, very stressed over it and all that. But wow, there was, and there was nothing else to do this year. You couldn't travel, you couldn't <laughs> socialize, you couldn't go on vacation. I mean, I worked exactly. a ton too. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think, you know, I think we gotta, we gotta learn new tricks and we gotta figure it out. Right. And, and this, the, the sales element isn't going to go away. What, no. Right. We just have to figure out how to manage it and there will be more blending, you know, that, that line between sales and marketing, I think 
you know, you, you, you mentioned before, like it was drawn, you know, let's say we drew that line 30 or 40 years ago, and then it was blurred at one point and readjusted, and then it was pretty clear for 10 years. I think this year it's going to be blurred again, and maybe two years from now it'll be more clear exactly what that division between sales and marketing is, because there's going to be an overlap this year of what people are doing if it's sales and marketing. Which, uh, you know, so you talked about your book, which is interesting. This year during the COVID shutdown, I finished writing my global marketing book. So it's at the publisher now. It'll release at the beginning of, uh, of next year. Um, and all that I talked about was the communication and what you can do online. And I've got a video studio in my house that I've had for a couple of years because in marketing, we've been making that content all the way along. So I think it's, you know, the sales definitely comes back with these are the kinds of questions we need answered. And you've got everybody in companies that are doing this successfully creating content. Because it's that content that people need to be able to find when they're looking for it. Right. And and here's the thing. It's, you know, so six or eight years ago, I did a set of training videos and they were awful. Like from a technical perspective, they were awful, right? It was a marketing person with a camera and, and and a bad light and, you know, filming me and doing the editing and all that Nowadays, we can throw up something like that in a tenth as much time at ten times the quality, yeah. right? Because ever, because if I think if you want to be a marketing person, you have to know video skills. But I would also say if you want to be a salesperson or a sales manager or a sales leader, you should know video skills too, right? Because I probably do, you know, six hours on average, six hours of content a week. Just in terms of short, you know, somebody sends me a question and I answer it. And I don't, I don't want to answer it by, you know, by writing. I want to explain it. I want to show them. I want, you know, so I'm doing it in front of lights with good audio. And it's a 30, you know, let's say a 30 second or a three minute answer. But I'm doing that constantly all the time. Which program are you using to do that? So I'm doing a little bit of overkill. I'm using um, Adobe. Uh, I'm using a pretty serious. Uh, what's that called? Um, I'm using an Adobe package, which is probably overkill. And I actually just bought a simpler one to to shift to something smaller because I'm I'm paying for probably 80 percent or ninety percent of the functionality I don't use. Um, but, but that's what I'm, I'm using. And then I did, so it's sort of funny, like I went through in the beginning, I was using a camera. It was like a hundred dollar camera. And then I realized that my iPhone with a good mic and a good light was better than that. So, and then I shifted back and now I have like a $700 Canon phone, uh, camera. So I do two things. I use a, a Canon camera. Uh, I have a document camera. I have about three, four hundred dollars worth of lights and about three, four hundred dollars worth of audio equipment. But I still do about half the stuff on my iPhone, right? 
So, you know, it's, it's sort of a blend depending on what I'm doing at that point during the day. If I'm sitting at my desk, I do it on my Canon camera with the good lights. And if I'm doing it while moving, I do it on my iPhone. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you really have upgraded. Yeah, I use my iPhone to record videos that are one-to-many, so more marketing. Right. And then I use Vidyard um, to record any messages that I want to send to somebody. I can either do a screen share and walk them through it, or I can just videotape myself on my laptop. And then I can do it. It creates a little thumbnail. So I take right. a whiteboard and flash their name in front of it moving so it captures their attention. So speaking about technology, since we're on the topic, what other technologies do you use in selling globally? You know what? So I, I always like to say I am one of the youngest people in the world who, who knows how to use a teletext machine. Did you ever encounter a teletext machine when you were uh, when you started? A teletext you know machine? I, you know, it's kind of like a manual typewriter. I'd put it in that category. Are you still using well, that? No, no. But they 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 look they were they what they did was they sent texts, right? But this was back before people used faxes. Yeah. And what you would do, you paid per letter. So the whole idea was you wanted to be really careful about how many letters you used, right? And the machines were about the size of a refrigerator. So the first job I had, I had a teletext machine next to my desk. Now we used faxes, but there were some countries where faxes were illegal. So we'd also use the teletext as a means of communication. Okay, so the reason I like to say that is that's, how, that's the type of technology I started with, right? And then I was really excited when computers, you know, when the laptop computers were around. And then, you know, so I go through that. But it all comes down, or to a large extent, it all comes down to communication. So I'm using stuff like WhatsApp a lot now and, and a program called Voxer. And going back to what we were talking about before, the, the whole concept of asynchronous communication has become really a big thing for me in the past couple of years and especially this year where um, you take these things and you can send off a 20 second or a 50 second voice message or even video clip and the other person will get it when they get it, right? And then they answer it and it comes back to you. So you have these, these conversations and, and this has been, I'd say this is probably the biggest change um, since Wi-Fi for me, mm -hmm. right? Um, because, you know, it's, it's just, it, 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 probably half of my communication is done through that now, right? And it's really cool because when you're explaining to somebody, you know, instead of typing out 200 words trying to explain, you can do a 10 second video and show them exactly what you want, right? Mm -hmm. So I love that, that stuff. Um, those are the big technological changes I've seen. How about you? I mean, recent, recently stuff. What about you? Yeah, well, I think uh, one of the big changes is, is chat. And that cracks yeah. me up because if you look at it, 
in the regards to translation interpretation mm -hmm. translation is written interpretation is spoken and chat right. is written yet it's real time like it's spoken and it's casual it's not formal writing right. so you know you talk chat bots in conversational marketing where it's pre-programmed that that is translation because if you use your time and think it out then you can anticipate what the questions are and the, you have it answered automatically yet if it's live chat um that's a whole you know is that translation or is that uh interpretation and so we've started to add um that technology you know we offer that so it, it operates more like a call center when you have a live chat is that you've right. got to have people that are trained in the language that are working for the company so they know how to answer right. it and the other thing is the crm i mean when i started my career there wasn't there wasn't the capacity of the crms are now i mean you had to put right. things in your you had to make notes to follow up with stuff but now i can go in and open up you know, we use HubSpot, um, so we yeah. can keep everybody well, in there. We can track everything that's going on. And I'll tell you what's funny with CRMs is you're talking about it becoming more powerful. And, and I think what's actually funny with CRMs is they've gone through a curve. So it used to be CRMs didn't have a lot of power. I don't know if you ever used Salesforce. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I hate attacking anybody here, but Salesforce, is way too much muscle for most people to use. Right. Right. So what happens is, but you get you get caught up into it because it's a brand name and everybody knows that you're comfortable with it. And then it just becomes you realize you're only using 10% of what they have, but you're paying for everything. So I also use HubSpot now, but I used Salesforce for 10, 10 years or so, and it's a great program. It's just too much muscle for you know, it's like Excel. When I use Excel, I'm only using one percent of the functionality, right? And then it was right. the same thing with, uh, you know, with, with Salesforce. But yeah, I, I find and I find that using a CRM with your partners, with your distributors, is really, really powerful because you're, you know, you you sort of put. You know, one of the biggest problems with partners, distributors, is trying to get them to give you information. And if you lead them into using a CRM, it, it almost leads them into it because they can see, you know, they, they get a good feel for why you need it. And, um, and, and you, know, you, can, you can really get them very often to give you a lot of really good information through using a CRM. Okay. So distributors, this is a, a real big interesting area for the differences let's deep dive here a little bit more so with the customers that are using distributors i really like it because it's a good way to get a foot on the ground one of my biggest beefs is when the company will give their carefully created and researched marketing or communications materials to the distributors for translation and i just grimace at some of the stuff i see back well, the distributors speak English well enough to communicate and have a relationship, yet they're not marketing people, and so they're they're changing the message complete, and then the company's lost any corporate message. So talk to me about what you're, you're, you're seeing on the sales right side. On 
but I'll tell you what, that is, I hate to say this because, you know, half of your audience is going to say, well, now they're really, half your audience is going to be really upset with me, but that is poor management, poor sales leadership, right? When that happens, because the distributor is your partner. His interests and your interests are not 100% aligned. They should be closely aligned, but they're not 100% aligned. So there are things you don't trust. I don't trust distributors 100% for intelligence from the field, okay? Because I want to get that intelligence from the field myself. And I'll pay a third party to do it so I can control it. And it's the same thing with things like marketing and marketing communications. Because I, I hate to say this, and, and again, there are lots of better and less good distributors out there. Mm -hmm. But the distributor could say, hey, you know, I'm coming and I'm saying, well, this is my product. And one of the benefits I have is a lifetime warranty or a 10-year warranty. And the distributor could say, hey, but I want to charge for uh, service, so I'm not going to translate that part, right? Now, I'm transferring it to the distributor with a price that assumes I'm going to give a lifetime or a 10-year warranty, and he's selling it and then maybe charging people for the war for repairs without telling me about it, right? That could happen if, you, if you're managing your distributor poorly, right? Um, and, and that's just one example. But there's also the situation, like I, I always laugh where, you know, you go to a presentation in some parts of the world and your distributor says, yes, this company is the biggest company in America and they have, you know, they, they sell hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know it's all, like, as you're standing there being introduced, you know your partner is lying about you. And you don't know if you should interrupt him or not, but you also don't want to misrepresent yourself. And that happens all the time, right? So um, I used to call this message creep. You, you basically, you, you put out a slide and it says, we have a hundred you know, fantastic installations, a hundred great reference sites. And then a month later, you see one of the salespeople has, cha has changed it to, we have hundreds of, of wonderful reference sites. And then a few months later, you see another salesman has changed it to, to we have more than a thousand wonderful reference sites. And, you know, a year later, somebody's changed that to we have thousands of wonderful reference sites, right? And you go, but no, we only have 112 at this point. You can't say that. And, and that happens. It happens all the time. So you have to control that because, like you said, you have the responsibility to have, you know, discipline in your messaging as a man, you know, as a manufacturer or as a producer, right? You know, that's, it's very important to have discipline in your messaging. So here's, uh, here's something maybe we can figure out as we're talking about this is I, I can calculate how much it costs for an employee to do the translations. And it's, yeah. it, it doesn't get to be a very large translation where your opportunity costs yeah. and your, your costs for the company to do it, you're wasting money, even though translation right. may look expensive. It's not cheaper to have it in time. Right. I haven't been able to calculate the costs of having your distributor doing it. 
Can you talk about having your distributor do your translation or how you'd pay distributors? Well, I was going to say that you know, the, the problem with that, I, I mean, that's a very valid point, right? It's not, you don't have a direct cost, maybe, right? You're not paying the distributor, but you might have an opportunity cost because is this costing you sales? Is this going to create a problem for you in the future? And, and, and part of the big problem with international sales in general, I think, is very often people say, well, you know what, I wasn't selling anything in Colombia last year. So anything I get, that's, that's gravy, right? But what you're basically saying, what, what you have to be thinking is, okay, but the Colombian market should be worth half a million dollars to me. And if I'm not getting that, I'm losing it. And so if I screw up the Colombian market because my distributor makes a bad translation of my paperwork, and I can't get a foothold in Colombia for the next three years, does that cost me you know, $1.5 million in sales, right? So I look at it like that, not necessarily, because everybody, you know, people will come and they'll say, yeah, I'll do this for free for you. But the question is, is that gonna cost you down the line, right? You're not paying him, sure, but is it gonna screw up your sales later on? And, and people, I'll tell you what, this is something that I find very, very frustrating because on the one hand, a lot of people are very willing to screw over their distributors, right? They're like, a lot of manufacturers have no loyalty to their distributors. On the other hand, they will take their distributors' word for major business decisions, right? You know, if the distributor says, oh yeah, they're, you know, the, the right customer we should be talking to is this uh, Joe Smith, Everybody will say, okay, that's that's fact. That's the Bible right there, right? Gospel from heaven. Or if the distributor comes back and says, Yeah, I'll translate your marketing material, we're like, Oh, of course, he's he's you know, he's Colombian. I'm sure his Spanish is good enough to translate this perfectly, right? But he doesn't think and about how good is his English. <laughs> how good is his English, or if he really understands our product, or how much you know, a lot of these technical documents. They might take hours and hours and hours to figure out the details. And is this guy really going to do that? Or is he going to hurry through it, right? Because he's doing it for free for you. Yeah. So that's the thing. I, I never, I always use, um, unfortunately, to be very frank, I've never used your services, but I've used your competitors a lot. Like I use, <laughs> I use translation and interpretation services all the time because I never, um, and and I'm, I speak languages. My wife is a, a professional interpreter. I've never asked her to, to translate business stuff. I always go to a professional because I want to make sure that I'm dealing with a business person, right? Because it's really important. And then the end of the day, you know, you do a, I knocked off a, a piece of marketing material a while back for, it was for Kirgi. A while back, I was doing like a presentation. I did a presentation for somebody in Kyrgyzstan. And they came back and they said, look, I need to be able to give this proposal to my boss. So I was able to get it done for 200 bucks. And it's a, like, a, it's like a $3 million proposal, right? So it's not a big investment for the potential return. Right. No, it's certainly not. I, I'm, so we're, um, 
So you use that in a presentation, particularly because the boss's English wasn't as good. Now you speak English and you're selling right. around the world. How are you handling oh. language issues? So and I, I, work, I work in English and I'll tell you why, because I don't want to make a mistake, right? To, to be really frank, right? Like, uh, you know, I'll tell you what I, so I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but this is one of my absolute favorite stories. So, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. the author? Yeah. Did you ever read Happy Birthday, Wanda June? No. No. So there's this, one of his books is written like a play, and it goes back and forth between different characters. And there's this one character, and he says... He says, you know, I once killed this German general and I snuck up on him and I grabbed him by his neck uh, and I said to him, you know, this is because of democracy and because, you know, because of all the horrible crimes you've committed. And he gives this whole speech. He says, and I said it in perfect German as I strangled him. And then it shows like the ghost of the German um, uh, general. And he says, he was he thought he was talking German. That was supposed to be German. I thought he was some type of a deranged Polish uh, POW or something. I had no idea what he was trying to say. And that always stuck to me because everybody likes, especially Americans, I'm sorry, everybody likes to think they speak languages. It is so difficult to speak a language. I can order coffee anywhere in the world, right? I can get in a taxi. I can say left, right, thank you. But boy, you want to talk business, you have to have really, really good language because you don't want to make a mistake, right? You don't want to be negotiating with somebody and he understands that you said 200,000 and you meant to say 2 million, right? Well, and this boom, is, you know. It cracks me up because here you are saying, I only speak English, but all the other people in the world are speaking English, even though it's not their primary. Part of it is right. learning how to communicate even well, but I'll tell though you, you're not completely proficient. And I'll tell you what. So, again, I had, you know, I'm, I'm full of these, these stories. I had a friend back when I was in my early 20s who he did a business degree. So he went to college for seven years. He said every summer he spent six weeks studying a different language. And he said he wasn't fluent in any, any language, but he knew about 150 words in seven different languages, which meant he could get it by. And I thought, that's what I want. That's the goal I want. Not necessarily mm -hmm. to be fluent in three languages, but the, so if you, in my opinion, I don't want to do business in any language, but I want to be able to talk to a taxi driver. I want to be able to check into a hotel. I want to be order, able to order in a restaurant. That shows that, you know, it helps you get around. It makes life easier for you. And it shows people that you consider. But I don't want to sit down and negotiate with somebody and be at a disadvantage because I'm working in a language that I'm not 100% fluent in. Right? Well, and I think there's the different levels. Like you're working in multiple countries around the world. Right. So getting proficient right. in one or two other languages does you a disservice because you're right. not using them all the time and therefore you're not going to stay current. Right. Whereas if you're a business executive that is just doing work between here yeah. and South America, well, you know, right. get to learn Spanish really well and yeah. then you can function in all those countries and do business. Right. So there Although, is an for, 
when we hire linguists, we only hire people who are fully bilingual in two languages. If they say they speak right. three or four, we throw their resume aside and don't even test them because it's really, really hard to be that highly proficient in more than two. There are people. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. My wife speaks five or six languages, but she speaks them. She's highly proficient in three, right? So she worked and she, so she only works in, she works in two plus English, right? But she can read, like she can read and stuff like that. She won't work in the other languages because, you know, she knows that she'll make mistakes and she won't get the idioms right. She won't get the, the, the vernacular right, that kind of thing. Even with Spanish, uh, my wife's primary language is Spanish and she, she actually manages a team of interpreters at a hospital. And she says, you know, sometimes like the Mexican people will, will be talking to a Venezuelan and they'll screw up on the vernacular, right? These things happen because there are differences. The same thing with Arabic. Like it's just such a broad range of languages. And you don't want to make business mistakes on that. Yeah, but I, but I also think like you're somebody who is selling internationally. So you're going out. You're right. not afraid. You've taught yourself. But there's right. so many people here in the U.S. Oh. that are just afraid afraid of other languages and I worry yes. about them hearing you and going okay well I'm definitely not going to do international work because I, I can't screw up how right. what are the ways well, that when the other person isn't fully English speaking you can do business together because you can oh well I yeah but I find it look I, I use interpreters all the time right not not all the time but when I'm in Latin America, when I'm in Japan and China, I'll always have an interpreter at my side, right? Because you go to the Middle East, the people you're dealing with are all probably going to speak very good English, right? Um, but you go to Latin America and there's a solid chance you're not going to have anybody you're dealing business with who has fluent English. So I can, I, I actually care, like I have a list of interpreters in pretty much every country in Latin America. So when I know that I'm going, I'll let them know and I'll and they'll meet me and spend the day with me and I'll pay them daily uh, fee. Right. And that's it's a bit like it's very important because then and I'll tell you like a story like so this is I am so glad that you talked about that. You brought interpreters in because we do have interpreters yeah. that travel with executives all over the world or right. help facilitate if somebody's giving a presentation. So and, that is how you get through your fear, your adamance of I'm not. Oh yeah, and and, and I'll tell you story, like I worked with this distributor once who really screwed something up, right? And it wasn't like I wanted to fire my. I needed them to understand what the mistake was. I needed them to teach them something, and so I went in and I made and I speak okay Spanish and they spoke okay English but I got an interpreter and I said to the interpreter now this is you'll understand this because one of the problems I find with Latin American interpreters is they soften your language right mm -hmm. and I said to the interpreter I said I you cannot soften my language I am going to be rude and you have to translate exactly what I'm saying and I went through and I said you you screwed up we had a problem, blah, 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 but we have to figure out what that problem was so it doesn't happen again. And it worked beautifully. And it was worth, you know, it was $200 maybe for the day's interpreter. And it worked. You know, it was probably brought in three, $4 million in sales after that 
just that day's work helping that salesperson understand what what her mistake was right so i'm so you know, glad you're talking about the, the roi on professional language services because so often companies yeah. look at it as an expense but they don't recognize what they're learning by not using a professional so i'll tell you what remember an hour ago you asked the difference between sales and marketing yeah sales every every breath i take i'm thinking about the roi so you know that that's that's the big difference is you're basically not anymore you know how many engineers i see that are in marketing now because everything is measurable i mean all yeah. the google analytics all the campaigns right. everything is measurable it's not just throwing right. money towards pr or advertising anymore you can track you run a facebook ad or a google right. ad you know yeah right right so there again, so, more, more uh, similarities growing between marketing and sales. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah, but, but, but I'm a big. Sorry. Yeah, let's, let's jump to trade shows. We have a couple minutes to talk. Oh, about right. That. Yeah, we've got some interesting. So this stuff is going to be on. interesting. Do you um, do you know the uh, Calman International by any chance? Do you ever work with them? What's the name? Calman International. No, I don't. No. Okay, so they're like one of the bigger uh, trade show booth designing companies. Mm -hmm. Actually, for your marketing, uh, for your podcast, you should reach out to them. They're great. But they've been in business for about 60 years designing booths for American companies that are going to international trade shows. Oh, interesting. And this year, they shifted to, I don't know that it's going to be a major part of what they do. I don't know that it's a permanent thing, but they're doing virtual trade shows, right? So I think everybody is trying to figure out how to deal with the whole concept of, you know, this big part of how we do business isn't around. In, in 2020, all my trade shows were canceled. And I'm not sure when they're coming back, right? And they've always been a huge part of my business. So it's, it's going to be interesting. You know, I um, did a webinar with Andrew White from Comptus through the New Hampshire Office of International Commerce, all about doing right. virtual international trade shows. And yeah. it's very interesting there. I've almost found some of them that I've been doing more productive because if yeah. the platform is, is good enough, you can go off to the, the coffee room and connect one-on-one -on -one right. with people right over video. I remember when I first figured it out, people's computers would ring and they'd come on all surprised, but then we'd have a nice one-on-one -on -one conversation right, right, right. and move on. But there is a lot of, and we've been providing simultaneous interpreters on interpreting platforms for more of the high-end uh, conferences. So I'm, I, that is definitely going to stay part of going in the future. And I'll tell you what, I, I'm a big proponent for me. Trade shows were all about prearranged meetings. They were not necessarily, but the, the idea that somebody walks into my booth and does business with me randomly yeah. has never been a big part of my life, right? Now, it depends what you sell. But for the most part, I would take these trade shows. I'd say, okay, 
20 of my distributors are going to be at them. I'm going to spend half an hour with each of them doing a review and, and having a meeting and catching up. And then I'm going to take everybody out for dinner. And that was really what the trade show was all about for me. Right. I can do those meetings online now because it, you know, two years ago, I couldn't say to somebody, hey, let's do a meeting, sit in front of your camera, point at, uh, sit in front of your computer, point the camera at yourself and let's review your funnel. Right. People didn't do that two years ago. Now right. everybody does. Right. So the thing is, I can, what I did at the trade show to a large extent, I can do it in my living room, <laughs> right? Right. So it's it's interesting, you know, it's interesting. It really I, is. And I don't know, I've been doing trade shows for 30 years. I, they're a big part of my life. My kids know when all the trade shows are because they're such a big part of my family's planning around. And now everything's going to change. I don't know that it's going to change back. Well, what are you hoping for? Um, it's a good question. I think that, look, I, I'm hoping that in a year or less, everybody's going to be traveling the way they were. Everybody's going to be able to travel the way they were. And I have a feeling that about 30 to 40% of the type of business travel I did is going to go away because I'm going to be doing a lot more coaching and training and routine meetings on camera, right? That's what I'm so hoping. So will you, will you like that? Will you, I know, I talked to some people yeah, and they'll really miss the, they really miss the travel. Well, and I talked look, to others who are as happy as anything. I'll miss the travel, but, but here's the thing. I am an extreme, like, first of all, I enjoy travel. I've always enjoyed travel. I'm not going to complain about, but I'm also a very extreme traveler, right? Like, you know, the nature of my life has been, I remember once I was in, um, I was in Caracas in Venezuela and somebody called me from Japan and said, my boss wants to have dinner with you tomorrow. And I was like, well, I, I'm not sure I can make it. Could you do it next week? He goes, no, no, you don't understand. My boss wants to have dinner with you tomorrow. <laughs> so I left the meeting. I went to the airport. I got on the first plane I could to Tokyo. And then like 24 hours later, I turned around and went back to Brazil because I had a meeting in Brazil following that, right? So I've done stuff like that. Um, and that's brutal, right? It's really, yeah. really hard on your body. It's hard on your family. So I think being able to cut down 40 to 50% of travel and get the same money, get the same sales, I'm going to be happy with that. You right. know, that's the way I look at it. Right, right, yeah. Well, we've got about a minute left here. Was there anything else we were going to cover? Yeah, so why don't we do this? Um, why don't we, because this is a, you know, good to go out to my, my listeners as well as yours, why don't you talk a little bit about what you did? Although we talked a few minutes ago about some of the stuff you do, but why don't you talk a little bit more about what you do, your podcast, your business, how you make it? Sure. Well, we connect people around the world uh, through high quality language services. And we really specialize in global marketing, multilingual marketing. So we do all high quality translations. We do the cultural adaptation to make sure it's going to work. We work with you to make sure your message is accurate. If it's inappropriate or your pictures are inappropriate or images, 
we'll come back and talk to you about that so uh, you'll know. So we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. We've got a 100% on-time track record. We've been around for over 30 years. I've owned the company for uh, 16 and a half years. Um, so we've got a really good team. We do over 200 languages and we're happy to do a free consult where we talk about your strategy, processes that make sense for you, what technologies you might be able to leverage in the language industry, and then the quality that you need. So, great. And the name of your the name of your company is, is Rapport International. International Rapport, like the French word for build Rapport, R A P P O R T International. Right. And the name of your podcast is Global Marketing. The Global Marketing Show. And if you look up theglobalmarketingshow.com, you can find us. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being on my show. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for being on my show. So we'll, we'll put links to each other on uh, the post and uh, hope everybody learned something. I sure did. Great. Thanks a lot. Me too. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.